This is VOA News. Reporting via remote, I'm Richard Green. U.S. President Joe Biden has opened a visit to the Middle East by offering Israelis strong reassurances of his determination to stop Iran's nuclear program. Biden said he'd be willing to use force as a last resort in an interview that aired Wednesday with Israel's Channel 12 as Biden opened a four-day visit to the region. The U.S. and Israel are expected to unveil a joint declaration on Thursday, cementing their close military ties and strengthening past calls to take military action against Iran's growing nuclear program. Israel has said both countries would commit to using all elements of their national power against the Iranian nuclear threat. Authorities in South Africa have arrested the owner of a bar and two employees in connection with the deaths of 21 teenagers who lost their lives at a tavern last month under mysterious circumstances. Vicki Stark reports from Cape Town, South Africa. A team of detectives working on the case made the arrests. Officials say the three suspects faced charges of violating the Liquor Act, while a forensic investigation into the cause of the deaths continues. The two employees, ages 33 and 34, have been fined $118, while the owner must appear in court for his alleged role in selling alcohol to minors. The 21 youths, the youngest of whom was just 13 years old, died in the early hours of Sunday, June 26th. Some had been celebrating the end of mid-year exams. There is speculation they ingested something poisonous, or were the victims of a gas leak. Vicky Stark for VOA News, Cape Town, South Africa. A former software engineer for the U.S. Central Intelligence Agency was convicted on Wednesday of leaking classified information to WikiLeaks from the spy agency in one of the biggest such thefts in CIA history. This is VOA News. Jurors in a New York City federal court convicted 33-year-old Joshua Schulte on eight espionage charges and one obstruction charge over the so-called Vault 7 leak. Schulte had represented himself at the month-long trial. The jury began deliberations on Friday. An earlier trial ended in March 2020. An earlier trial ended in March 2020 because jurors deadlocked on the main counts. The leaked materials concerned software tools the Central Intelligence Agency used to surveil people outside the United States through such means as compromising smartphones and Internet-connected TVs. For the first time since 2002, the euro and the dollar are nearly worth the same amount. The AP's Ed Donahue reports. The euro has long been the stronger currency. The real news these days is not so much that the euro is weak, but that the dollar is strong. Economist Daniel Gross with the Center for European Policy Studies says the effects of a weaker euro are complex. The strong dollar means also export opportunities for everybody else. And uh, that should help us uh, in a couple of years uh, to compensate for the higher oil prices. One euro is worth close to one dollar now, down 15% from a year earlier. This threatens to hurt American companies because their goods become more expensive for foreign buyers. On the bright side, imported goods from cars and computers to toys and medical equipment become less expensive. A stronger dollar could also mean bargains for American tourists in Europe. I'm Ed Donahue. Peru's anti-drug chief said Wednesday it wants to secure a deal with the U.S. as soon as possible to help it tackle the use of planes to smuggle cocaine at a time when cocoa cultivation has been growing. Peru is one of the world's top producers of cocaine. It has been seeking an agreement with the U.S. since March for non-lethal support in intercepting planes transporting illegal drugs. 
The U.S. suspended a similar program two decades ago when the Peruvian Air Force accidentally shot down a plane after mistaking it for one belonging to drug traffickers, killing two U.S. citizens. Recapping our top story, U.S. President Joe Biden has opened a visit to the Middle East by offering Israelis strong reassurances of his determination to stop Iran's nuclear program. Biden said he'd be willing to use force as a last resort during an interview that aired Wednesday with Israel's Channel 12 on the first day of his four-day visit to the region. The U.S. and Israel are expected to unveil a joint declaration on Thursday, cementing their close military ties and strengthening past calls to take military action against Iran's growing nuclear program. Israel has said both countries would commit to using all elements of their national power against the Iranian nuclear threat. You can find more on this stories and all the stories we're covering at voanews.com. Reporting via remote, I'm Richard Green. Today is Thursday, July 14th, and this is VOA's International Edition. I am Chinedorfo in Washington. Coming up in the next half hour, Ukraine calls for accelerated weapons delivery to its forces as Russia continues missile strikes into key cities. The deliveries of weapons have to be sped up, and all our friends and partners know that. Many are working to make it happen. The United States continue to lead these efforts. Sri Lanka's acting president declares a state of emergency as protests continue in the capital city. The situation has worsened dramatically. Thousands and thousands of protesters are returning to the streets and the presidential palace where there has been a confrontation with security forces. And two candidates are knocked out of the race to replace British Prime Minister Boris Johnson. We'll have these stories and more next on International Edition. Stay tuned. Ukrainian authorities say Russian missile strikes in the southern city of Maikhlev has killed at least five people. That's part of a series of artillery and missile barrages across the country in the last day that had left at least 10 dead and dozens wounded. This as Ukrainian Foreign Minister Dmitry Kuleba renews his calls on his country's allies for additional heavy weaponry, saying the deliveries need to be accelerated. The deliveries of weapons have to be sped up. And all our friends and partners know that. Many are working to make it happen. The United States continue to lead these efforts, and we deeply appreciate what they're doing and the, the state-of-the-art weapon, heavy weapons that they, uh, that they provided Ukraine with. That's Ukrainian Foreign Minister Dmitry Kuleba. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres said that, quote, an important and substantive step, unquote, was made towards a comprehensive deal to resume Black Sea exports of Ukraine grain after talks between Russia, Ukraine, Turkey, and UN officials on Wednesday. He said that although Ukraine and Russia had engaged in, quote, for peace, we still have a long way to go, unquote, Ukraine and Russia are major global wheat suppliers, and Russia is also a large fertilizer exporter, while Ukraine is a significant producer of corn and sunflower oil. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres. Today in Istanbul, we have seen a critical step, a step forward to ensuring the safe and secure export of Ukrainian food products through the Black Sea. In a world darkened by global crisis, today at last, a ray of hope to ease human suffering and alleviate hunger around the world, a ray of hope to support developing countries and the most vulnerable people, 
a ray of hope to bring a measure of much-needed stability to the global food system. More technical work will now be needed to materialize today's progress, but the momentum is clear. In the end, the aim of all parties is not just an agreement between the Russian Federation and Ukraine, but an agreement for the world. Today is an important and substantive step, a step on the way to a comprehensive agreement. Finally, let us never forget that these talks are happening in the midst of a bloody conflict. People are still dying. Fighting is still raging. But hopeful news from Istanbul shows the importance of dialogue. Let us take inspiration from that ray of hope to help light a way to a desperately needed negotiated solution for peace in line with UN Charter and international law. There was a substantive agreement on many aspects, namely the questions related to the mechanisms of control, related to system of coordination, and relating to the questions of mining, relation to many of the concrete, I would say, substantive aspects. But, of course, uh, this was a first meeting. Uh, the progress was extremely encouraging. Uh, we hope that uh, now the delegations are coming back to their capitals, uh, and we hope that uh, the next steps will allow us to come to a uh, formal agreement. That's UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres. President Joe Biden has started his visit to the Middle East and is set to meet with Saudi leaders on Friday. He said the trip is aimed at strengthening a strategic partnership based on mutual interests and responsibilities, while also holding true to the fundamental American values. Khalil Jashan, president of the Arab Center in Washington, discussed the visit objectives and challenges of balancing U.S. interests with U.S. values with VOA senior analyst Mohammed El-Shinawi. Initially, this trip is for domestic purposes. The main purpose is oil prices. The second one is inflation. And the third one is to get the justification or somehow the green light from the pro-Israel lobby. So it's oil, as the president has indicated clearly. Israeli security, as he indicated in his op-ed piece, we wanted American interest. And so I hope he gets something out of it. But frankly, based on the pronouncements by the administration, I just don't see clearly what his objectives are. President Biden said... I will meet with Saudi leaders on Friday. My aim will be to strengthen a strategic partnership going forward that's based on mutual interests and responsibilities while also holding true to fundamental American values. How could the president achieve this delicate balance between national interests and the American values? Uh, I have no problem with the first part of his statements. Definitely U.S. relations with key allies, including Saudi Arabia, need some fine-tuning, considering the uh, deterioration over the past uh, couple of years. But that's not the issue. The issue is the last few words in, in the question that you just raised. How do you reconcile that? And that has been the, with, with uh, basically American fundamental values. That has been the crisis of American foreign policy for many, many, many years, way beyond Biden. Whether Biden can bridge that gap, uh, I doubt it. Because first of all, I mean, what do we mean by fundamental American values? We mean democracy, uh, rule of law, uh, a constitution, the right to vote, uh, the right of the citizens to participate in the decision-making process, basic freedoms, basic human rights. I don't see those as necessarily emerging in the region as a result of U.S. foreign policy, and I don't see them as improving because of this. 
In Jeddah, leaders from across the region will meet President Biden, pointing to the possibility of a more stable and integrated Middle East, with the United States playing a vital leadership role. Would that lead to a Middle East NATO or expanding normalization with Israel? If that's indeed the purpose of the visit, I think the president is wasting his time. I wish he would have gone to the region and started his with the peace initiative rather than a war initiative. The last thing the region needs is a NATO-like organization that doesn't make sense. There isn't enough common ground for something like this to take place. I mean, NATO is falling apart in Europe. I don't see how a NATO can emerge in the Middle East. I think this is just talk. The U.S. definitely can play a positive role in the Middle East if it chooses to do so, but not through a, again, a military coalition. That was Khalil Jashan, president of the Arab Center in Washington, speaking with my colleague, Mohammed Al-Shinawi. Hundreds of thousands of demonstrators have poured into the streets of Sri Lanka following the declaration of state of emergency and a curfew by acting president. The country's prime minister, serving as press president in waiting, since President Gotabaya Rajapaska fled the Maldives early on Wednesday, he accused the demonstrators of attempting to, quote, grab power, unquote, when they broke in and took over the prime minister's office. Security forces have warned the protesters to, quote, maintain peace, unquote, until elections are held after scuffles broke out close to the president's office. For more on the mood of the nation, I spoke with VOS East Asia correspondent Luke Hunt. The situation has worsened dramatically. Thousands and thousands of protesters are returning to the streets and the presidential palace where there has been a confrontation with security forces. People have been tear gassed, shots have been fired, and it isn't a right mess at the moment. How severe are the clashes? And do we have casualties already? We don't know what the casualty figures are, but there have been clashes. Now, the security forces have been extremely well behaved, very tolerant of the protesters up until now. However, the acting Prime Minister has come out and declared a state of emergency and a curfew. Now, protesters in their angst have attempted to storm the presidential palace again and cross over a perimeter into the compound. That is what has forced the security forces to retaliate. And what about the talks by the opposition? Is everything on hold based on this announcement by the acting president? This is a big sore point. What is happening with the negotiations? They were underway. The speaker was touted as a potential acting president. He would have spent 30 days in the job while an all-party government was to be formed. However, he has stood by the president and he has passed the baton to the Prime Minister, who is now the acting president. So Sri Lankan politics is in a complete state of flux. Nobody seems to know what is going on. And it would appear that Renil Retmanasing, the Prime Minister, is now the acting president and nothing has changed. How would you describe the mood of the protesters on the street? Obviously, they do not intend to obey the curfew or the state of emergency. So what's going to happen from here on? This afternoon, life was starting to return a little bit back to normal. There were a few cars on the road. Those who could get petrol and needed to be on the streets were, and the crowds were starting to dissipate. However, once the curfew was announced and a state of emergency declared, initially it was hundreds, and then it was thousands, and they just started streaming back onto the streets 
and heading towards the presidential palace where we've had this confrontation with security forces. Where that leaves the country, we won't know until the morning. That's VOA East Asia correspondent Luke Hunt speaking with me from Colombo. In other news, two candidates have been knocked out of the race to replace British Prime Minister Boris Johnson. That leaves six lawmakers battling to lead the Conservative Party and the country. Former Health Secretary Jeremy Hunt and Treasury Chief Nadim Zahawi failed to reach the threshold of 30 votes by Conservative lawmakers needed to stay in the contest. The 358 Tory legislators will vote again on Thursday, and if needed, further rounds of voting will take place next week until two candidates remain. The final two contenders will face up to a vote by all Conservative Party members. The winner will automatically become Prime Minister without the need for a national election. For more on this story and other breaking news, visit our website at voaafrica.com. Remember to connect with us on social media. We are on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Search for VOA Africa. You're listening to VOA's International Edition. I am Chinedua in Washington. Southern European states want NATO to address terrorist threats in North Africa. Anwar Bokas is a professor of counterterrorism and countering violent extremism at the Africa Center for Strategic Studies. He says the situation is complicated with the redeployment of European forces, which he says constitute a major strategic change not only for Southern Europe but for African migrants. Bokas tells VOA's Carol Van Dam it's not realistic to think the deployment of Russian mercenaries will be able to secure territory in northern Mali and Sahel, where militant insurgency has been on the rise. The capability to monitor their, their borders and, 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 and to protect, obviously, the territory better than, than most. But there are still fragile states in there, as you know. There's Libya, uh, which is extremely fragile. There is Mauritania as well, and, and Tunisia to some extent here, right? So there are risks, there's no doubt about it, for the Maghreb, North Africa, and by extension, uh, Europe as well. These numerous groups, including Islamist militant groups, as you've pointed out, um, have taken advantage of the Mali government's inability to assert control over territory in the north by continuously asserting territorial claims and attacking government forces and international security forces that have been stationed there now. Have these attacks and threats destabilized the neighboring countries, too? And if so, how does that impact the whole relationship with North Africa and European countries? Uh, I mean, to be, to be fair, I mean, the destabilization of the region and it started <clears throat> before the coup, right, and before the deployment of, of Russian forces. But nonetheless, you know, the threat has uh, has deteriorated. It has aggro, you know, has has, uh, has become worse since since the coup. Uh, so there are risks, as I said. One of them is if you look at the mercenaries that have deployed there, and by this I mean, you know, Wagner. A portion of these mercenaries if we believe the reports we are reading here, are Syrians more than, than just Russian, you know, operatives. And, and the risk here is that Mali, northern Mali and other parts of the country might become a, again, you know, a rare base for, you know, violent extremist groups that might strike at North, uh, at North Africa not just at, at the western part of West Africa. So, so there is that, that is, there is that, that scenario here, right? Especially with if there are, as if we trust the reports, you know, Libyans that are now fighting in, in, in Mali. And again, if we trust the report that there are Syrians and, and others. So there, there are risks. 
Now, even if the French recently, you know, recently in the recent months, they have neutralized, you know, several leaders of these violent extremist groups that have originated with them from Algeria, from Mauritania, you know, from the Western Sahara and, and from, from Tunisia here. Most famous of which, as you know, is Abdelmalik Drugdel of AQIM, Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb, and Adnan Abu Walid Sahrawi of the so-called Islamic State in, in the Greater Sahara. So Libya is or could be at, at risk. And if All these countries that you're mentioning seem to be at risk and destabilized in some parts of the country, at least, or others. Yeah. Italy and Spain, in particular, in, in southern Europe, are urging NATO to do something about it. And, of course, NATO is right now very transfixed on Russia's war in Ukraine, and that's had its impact, too, on Africa. Do you think NATO is ready to do something, is ready to act on these terrorist threats from Africa? It depends what can be done. And, and most importantly, we have to see what the lessons that have been learned. And if you want to implement a counterterrorism strategy, we have to identify the shortcomings. We have to, you know, to assess the practices and, and security arrangements here. So there has to be a holistic approach to it, not just a military approach. That's Anwar Bokas of the Africa Center for Strategic Studies speaking with my colleague Carol Van Dam. While Ethiopia's civil war has not reached the capital Addis Ababa, rights groups and authorities arbitrarily detained thousands of Tigrayans last year in waves of ethnically motivated arrests. VOA spoke to recently released Tigrayans about the conditions they endured and Harold Wilkins reports from Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. With African Union headquarters based here, Addis Ababa appears as a modern international city, prompting some to call it the continent's diplomatic capital. But rights groups say tensions are boiling beneath the surface from Ethiopia's war with Tigrayan forces that saw thousands of Tigrayans last year arbitrarily arrested and abused after the government accused some Tigrayans in the capital of being undercover agents. VOA spoke to a Tigrayan man who shared his experience on the condition of anonymity for fear of political retaliation. He said he was released in February after being jailed in the capital for three months in a makeshift prison. The police might have mood swings that you might get kicked. There are a lot of ways you were kicked. I personally also was kicked one day for the... For doing nothing, I did nothing. I was about to take a shower. That's who were kicked a lot of times. They only need a reason to kick you. Rights groups such as Amnesty International say ethnically motivated detentions increased days after the government declared a state of emergency in early November, following threats by Tigrayan forces to attack the city. Samur, who declined to give his full name, is one of the capital's many Tigrayan residents. He says he fled to Uganda in March after being held for nearly three months in a prison in Addis Ababa. Astonishing, you know, to, to learn that there were kids with us, with, with us there. I, I specifically remember this kid, he was in grade seven. He barely began high school, you know, and he wasn't even born in Tigray. His father is a Tigray and he, his mother is not even Tigray. In May, the death in custody of a Tigrayan general and a former commander in the African Union mission in Somalia, General Gebremedin Fikadu, sparked protests in the capital. Reuters reported in June at least 15,000 Tigrayans were detained between November and February and that 17 died in custody, some after being taken from the capital to a prison in the town of Mizan Teferi. VOA spoke with another Tigrayan who withheld his name, who recalls the state of inmates transferred from the Mizan Teferi prison to his prison. 
He says at Mizan to ferry, five prisoners had to share one loaf of bread and two litres of water for three days, which is about one glass of water per person per day, he says. He adds that all were in terrible condition and were very hungry and thirsty. VOA could not independently verify the reported deaths and allegations of abuse while in custody. The state-funded human rights organisation Ethiopian Human Rights Commission claims all Tigrayans held arbitrarily in the capital have been released. All the arrests, mass arrests during that happened during those, that period are connected in relation particular to the state of emergency um, have been um, have ceased since the lifting of the state of emergency around February. Ethiopia lifted its six-month state of emergency in February, but the commission in late June confirmed reports that 9,000 Tigrayans are still being held in the town of Samara and called for their immediate release. Ethiopia's government did not respond to VOA's request for comment, but has in the past denied any ethnically motivated arrests or abuse of Tigrayans. Henry Wilkins for VOA News, Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. Hello, I'm Carol Castiel. Coming up, a conversation with the director of the Center for Effective Public Management, Elaine Kmark. She analyzes the role of domestic extremist groups in the January 6, 2021 attack on the U.S. Capitol, national and state efforts to restore abortion rights in America, and President Joe Biden's declining poll numbers and what they mean for the upcoming midterm elections. That's Press Conference USA this Saturday and Sunday on The Voice of America. And to all our VOA listeners, please note we have moved our programs to a new website, voaafrica.com, from voanews.com. There you will find all your favorite VOA radio and TV programs and a whole lot more. Find us on voaafrica.com, and thanks for listening. This has been International Edition on The Voice of America. On behalf of the entire production team, Thank you so much for listening. Visit our website for in-depth coverage of all events and news 24 hours a day at voaafrica.com. Until next time, I am Chinedua for in Washington, wishing you a great day. An editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. In 2022, the DPRK has launched 31 ballistic missiles, including six intercontinental ballistic missiles, an intermediate-range ballistic missile, and at least two claimed hypersonic glide vehicles. All these launches violated multiple UN Security Council resolutions. In addition, reports indicate that Pyongyang is preparing to conduct a nuclear test for the first time in five years.
In the face of these provocations, the United States introduced a resolution at the Security Council in May, strengthening sanctions on the DPRK over its ballistic missile launches. However, for the first time in 15 years, a dangerous division occurred in the Security Council regarding the DPRK. While 13 members voted in favor of the resolution, Russia and the People's Republic of China, two permanent members of the Council, voted to veto it, ensuring its defeat. On June 8th, at a discussion of the UN General Assembly over the vetoes cast by Russia and the PRC, Ambassador Jeffrey De Laurentiis, senior advisor for political affairs at the U.S. Mission to the United Nations, said the vetoes showed implicit approval of the DPRK's dangerous and destabilizing actions. Thirteen council members chose to send a strong message to the DPRK that its unlawful WMD and ballistic missile development will not be tolerated and to send a signal to all proliferators that there should be consequences for their behavior. Two did not. Ambassador de Laurentiis noted that earlier this year, Russia and the PRC pledged a no-limits partnership. We hope these vetoes are not a reflection of a partnership elevated above the collective interest of this body or of the multilateral institutions mandated to ensure the safety and security of us all, he said. The United States has repeatedly made clear that it seeks dialogue with Pyongyang without preconditions, and the commitment to a diplomatic path with the DPRK remains. The United States has also made clear that, together with its allies, it will maintain a strong deterrent capacity and will seek implementation of all multilateral and unilateral sanctions. At the UN, Ambassador de Laurentiis declared the United States will continue to work regularly, diligently, and transparently with the Security Council, our allies and partners, and all member states who seek to stop the DPRK's unlawful WMD and ballistic missile programs and uphold the values of non-proliferation. That was an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. 